this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the words, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Zach Austin, and our first feature-length guest, Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador, we're so grateful to have you today. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, but last year when I was the vice president of events, we did a Zoom event before the entirety of the Yale Law School FedSoc. You might have been seeing the news recently that we have moved back to in-person events with varying amounts of success. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we had a conversation as a chapter earlier with Karl Rove, and he had this line when he was talking with Dr. Kissinger. Rove had described Kissinger as someone who needed no introduction, to which Dr. Kissinger said, I would like one anyway. <laughs> and so with that in mind, I thought I would read a quick bio, even though you are certainly a man who needs no introduction. Ambassador John Bolton graduated summa cum laude from Yale University in 1970 and then from Yale Law School in 1974. His legal career is impressive. He spent a total of 11 years at Covington and Burling, was a partner for seven years in the firm of Werner, Reed, Bolton, and McManus, and was of counsel at Kirkland and Ellis for a decade from 2008 to 2018. Beyond that, he served as the 27th United States National Security Advisor and the 25th United States Ambassador to the United Nations. We're also grateful to say that he's advised the last four Republican presidents and has been a central player in American foreign policy since the days of the Nixon administration. Ambassador Bolton, we're so grateful to have you. Thank you for coming back to uh, spend a couple minutes with your alma mater and uh, talk with all the students who are listening right now. It's such a pleasure. I can't wait. I'm just sorry we couldn't uh, do it in person. I'd, I'd love to see some of your friends up there these days. You know, I, I should add uh, on the topic of some of our friends, Ambassador Bolton does share a number of similarities with Zach and I, uh, including having once been employed by the American Enterprise Institute, an institution that, that's near and dear to all of our hearts, Zach and I having worked there as, as RAs, and of course you having served in a number of roles there over, over the course of decades. And I don't want to speak for Zach, and you might you might debate this description these days, but but Ambassador, you, you and I are probably two of the only Goldwaterites to have ever attended Yale Law School. <laughs> It's a rare well, distinction. There, there are a few. There are a few who were teachers there when I was there. Bob Bork and Ralph Winter and uh, Ward Bowman. There were there were more conservative teachers at the law school when I was there than there were conservative students. It's almost it's almost a tie these days, but that's because uh, unfortunately there, there are zero conservative professors. <laughs> hey, John, that's not fair. There are at least two conservative students. Yeah, right. Exactly. There are at least two. <laughs> We're really grateful. We have the largest first-year board we've ever had in chapter history. So uh, from the student perspective, I think that ratio has definitely reversed. Fantastic. Mr. Ambassador, I guess I want to start this first question 
by way of referencing a paper that you wrote in 1976 for AEI, which is really how all great questions start. Uh, you, you wrote this, this paper about the Hatch Act and how it relates to civil servants. And Congress has since amended the Hatch Act to a point that I think the paper itself is kind of moot, although interesting for all of our listeners if you want to kind of dig deep into the archives. But I think it speaks to something that, that's really infused your entire career, which is uh, managing government bureaucracies, dealing with civil servants, and kind of the competing interests that are incumbent in that process. And so that's really just a big way of framing a question about international law and your work in state and your work at the UN. So at YLS, and I think more broadly in, in the high-minded circles, people view international law as a we spirit of cooperation, not really as a forum for defending the interests of the United States and its citizens in the international arena. And so I think what gets lost in the waters of Turtle Bay is often that the marketplace for international problem solving is really highly competitive. And so the UN gets somewhat sanctified, and US-UN, uh, its mission, which is the United States mission to the UN, its mission is not for the good of the world, but it's really for the good of our country. And so what we end up seeing with, with the kind of permanent staff there quite frequently is a sort of clientitis that I think is really natural with a lot of FSOs at state, but uh, one in which the mission's responsibility to defend American interests, whether they're national security, political, economic, or otherwise, tends to fall by the wayside in that spirit of international cooperation. So I guess the first question I want to lead off with with you is how, as someone interested in international relations and, and being kind of a, a leading figure in the international relations world, how do you go about directing and managing a bureaucracy under those circumstances? Well, I think this is, uh, this is a question that's very important, uh, particularly for conservatives who at some point in their career may go into the federal government and be responsible for policy or management over some segment of it, be it the Justice Department or state or wherever it might be. You know, I think a lot of conservatives and libertarians who are quite rightly suspicious of government power, worried about uh, what happens in the bureaucracy, take a view of it that it's hopelessly hostile and really un unworkable uh, in toto. Whereas, in fact, government bureaucracies have cultures. I think this is something we've learned from public choice economics, uh, even from Ralph Nader when he talked about the capture of regulatory agencies. And each agency, each department has its own culture. Uh, the Defense Department uh, has a very different culture than the State Department, just to give one <laughs> clear example. Uh, so, so I think when you come into a bureaucracy, you, you could treat it as the deep state and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. It's out to get me. I don't trust anything they say. Or you can try and understand it. It's sort of like uh, Margaret Mead going out to the South Sea Islands. And, and I like to say that I tried to study each bureaucracy that I worked in, tried to understand it, not because I wanted a membership card, but because I wanted a driver's license. So the more you understand, the, particularly the career mindset, the better you are positioned, uh, not to persuade them that you're right, but to help get done what you need to get done. And uh, I understand it can be frustrating, but there are a lot of lessons to be learned there. Within the State Department, for example, there are a lot of subcultures. The Asia Bureau is very different than the Europe Bureau, and that's very different from the legal advisor's office. So as an outnumbered conservative, what I tried to do was pit some of these subcultures against each other to help get to where I wanted to go. All of this uh, seems to me, though, to rest on one fundamental point. If you're in the government, again, particularly for conservatives, 
you want to move it in the direction that uh, the president for whom you're working wants it to move. And to do that most effectively, you have to understand that it doesn't mean succumbing or going native, as they say. It doesn't mean becoming victim of clientitis. It just means figuring out how to make the wheels turn. And that's, that's really what I tried to do, successfully sometimes, unsuccessfully other times. I think one of the things that is so admirable about your career is two things. One is clientitis is wrongly framed because you've always kept the client as the American government and the American people. Yeah, they don't understand what the client is. That's part of the real problem at the State Department. And even explaining that to them gets looks of bewilderment on some of their faces, I can tell you. And the other thing, of course, is that you've held true to, I think it's the Jim Baker adage, which is you got to respect the man who got elected, or I guess the woman who got elected someday. But being able to, especially at the highest levels of the American cabinet uh, and the American foreign service apparatus, respecting the wishes of whoever the democratically elected president is at the time, which I think is something that gets lost in these deep, complex bureaucracies all too often. Yeah. You know, the chapter has really been blessed. As we've grown in size, I think we've seen something of a subculture mentality take root here as well. And one of the things we're hoping to elucidate on future episodes of Constitutional Conventions is the debate that's going on within Yale FedSoc about some of these pressing issues of American life more broadly. And I think the situation right now, the war in Russia and Ukraine, is, is sort of at the top of the mind for many of our members. When the war first broke out in February... I think the chapter was basically cleaved in half on two different camps. One of them saw the need for some sort of aggressive American response very quickly, be that diplomatic or you know sending fighter jets from Poland to Ukraine, um, a no-fly zone, what have you. And there was another camp that said, our focus right now as conservatives should be on what's going on domestically. This is a distraction. It's beyond the borders of NATO. It's not our concern. Um, and I think this represents sort of a broader cleavage we're seeing in the conservative legal movement beyond those who are, you know, still trying to assert America and its place in the world. And those who look to, you know, these sort of bureaucratic questions of what's going on in the State Department with a different kind of skepticism. You know, they say, here's this bureaucracy. Maybe we just shouldn't engage with it at all. And our role as conservatives is to address other questions. Do you have anything to say to that camp of folks, Ambassador? I imagine you have some strong opinions on this. <laughs> well, I, I just think it's naive to think that you, you can live here unaffected by what's happening in the rest of the world. And uh, let's just take Ukraine for, for a second. It's been a principle of American foreign policy since 1945 that peace and security in Europe is in the self-interest of the United States. We're not doing this out of charity. We're doing it because we think it benefits us and that a stable and secure Europe uh, is good for the United States. Now, it's certainly true that Ukraine is not part of NATO, uh, not for lack of trying. George W. Bush proposed bringing a NATO fast track to Georgia and uh, Ukraine in uh, 2008, April, at the Bucharest NATO summit, and the French and the Germans stopped it. Four months later, you know, you don't get many laboratory experiments in foreign policy. Four months later, Vladimir Putin invaded Georgia. I mean, how hard is this to figure out? The fact is that a successful Russian invasion of Ukraine, or even the disruption that's been caused so far, has a direct palpable impact on the security of NATO allies like Poland, the Baltic republics, others in Eastern Europe, who see themselves threatened by this. So something can happen outside of 
NATO's boundaries that nonetheless disrupts peace and security in Europe and therefore threatens us. And we sort of pushed Ukraine aside because it was once part of Russia. Uh, look at it this way. What if Russia were invading Finland today, uh, as they've tried to do before? Finland's not a NATO member either. Would we just say, real, too bad about that? Of course not. So you have to look. Uh, there aren't magic formulas here. I'm a Burkean conservative, and I, I fear broad abstractions generally. But if you look at circumstances around the world, just keep asking the question, what is America's national interest here? And almost inevitably, we do have interest around the world because we have a, a global economy and because we have friends and allies around the world. It's an unhappy prescription for some, but we're not Switzerland and we're never going to be. Ambassador, I wanted to dovetail off of that and talk about issues a little closer to our home here in New Haven. We've seen a lot of YLS alums being deeply involved in the American response to the Russia-Ukrainian war. Uh, that includes Jake Sullivan, who's right now in the White House, and it also includes Professor Harold Coe arguing for Ukraine in front of the International Court of Justice. I know you have strong opinions about both the ICC and the International Criminal Court, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what role these institutions have to play in resolving the situation, if any. Well, I, I have been a skeptic of the International Criminal Court, not to mention the International Court of Justice for well over 20 years now. And I think while there's little doubt that in any conventionally understood uh, uh, meaning, Russia's engaged in uh, attacks on civilian populations that constitute war crimes by anybody's definition, but that doesn't solve the most pressing question that we have right now, which is jurisdiction. Who's going to do this? Uh, I've written at great length why I think the International Criminal Court is simply beyond any bounds of acceptability for America because of its effort to oversee us. You know, we live in a constitutional system of representative government. We make our own laws. We judge our own people's mistakes. And we don't need a bunch of nannies in The Hague telling us we're not doing well enough. I think the optimal solution here, although I know it's not popular in the Biden White House, uh, but the president did say you can't leave Putin in power in Russia. It may have been impolitic to do that, and he certainly doesn't have a plan to do it, and he was just shooting his mouth off, as is so often the case. But one day, this will be Russia's responsibility. These crimes were committed in Russia's names, and it ought to be for the Russian people to judge the people who uh, were responsible for it. Now, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but that's the best way to resolve it. We've seen this in a number of circumstances. Countries will do different things. South Africa adopted a truth and reconciliation commission approach post-apartheid rather than a prosecution uberalis approach. We'll, we'll see what happens, but, uh, but certainly going to the international uh, criminal court here for conservatives may seem tempting, but it's fatal. We have to be consistent on this. We don't go to the ICC when bad guys are doing things, but say, you can't touch us. This court is fundamentally flawed from the American constitutional perspective, and we should have nothing to do with it. Yeah, and as, as I alluded to before, the marketplace for international problem solving is broad and, and complex, and it's not just the United Nations. And so, as I recall, you were instrumental in having President Bush unsign the agreement that put us in the ICC in the first place. 
It was one of the happiest days of my uh, government career. It was a mistake to get into it. You know, this is this in the United States, and it's true in Yale Law School too. This is all virtue signaling. It's chest pounding about how good we are. Bill Clinton signed that uh, agreement knowing it could never get uh, ratified in the Senate, but he did it to show he could feel good for international crimes. Uh, and I think that's a lot of what's going on now. It's just breastfeeding. It's not going to have any effect on the hard men running the Soviet Union, uh, sorry, Freudian slip, running Russia right now, that's for sure. I think that actually one of the things that we're probably not going to get to talk about is the state of Israel, of which you've been one of the most stalwart defenders in the last half century. And the International Criminal Court and other kangaroo courts are perfect examples of what happens when you delegate too much of your responsibility and too much of your jurisdiction to a court that doesn't reflect any kind of common sense or any kind of of reasonable justice. Well, it's not a court that fits in a governmental system. It's not a court that any that any democratic institution of the United States has agreed to. It's not it's not a court that can enforce its judgments. It's much like the rest of international law. It's play acting. Uh, that doesn't make the world safer. It makes it uh, more dangerous because there are a lot of deluded people, some of them at Yale Law School, who actually thinks that it makes a difference, uh, and it doesn't. Speaking of these Yale Law School debates again, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier we have the split in the chapter right now about whether these issues are worth caring about or not. I think John and I are both in the firm camp of we think they are worth caring about. But we also noticed this spat that happened on Twitter between you and another Yale Fed Sock alum, uh, Elbridge Colby. And you two were talking about how important the relative American response right now is to the Ukraine situation vis-a-vis sort of saving posture, capital, even munitions for a potential confrontation with China over Taiwan uh, in the the coming years. Do you have any responses to Bridge Colby and and sort of his take that uh, I believe in his words he said, you're a dove on China because (laughs) of standing up for Ukraine? Well, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's it's not much of a debate. I think the the argument that resources are finite, China is more important than anything else. Therefore, forget the Middle East, forget Eastern Europe, is is just uh, an incorrect reading of history. The fact is that there are any number of ways to grow the resources that are available for foreign and defense policy. I mean, it's like saying, well, gee, it's, it was really too bad on December the 7th, 1941, that we only had a limited number of resources. And, you know, we lost Hawaii and Britain fell to the Nazis. And we're really sorry about that. If you if you face a new environment, you come up with new resources. I, I think the better argument is that the United States overall needs to devote more attention and more resources to international threats and challenges than to reallocating income and redistributing wealth and regulating America domestically. We've got all the resources we need if we pay uh, proper attention to it. Now, that's not to say I believe and have believed for some time China is the existential threat to the United States and the West in the 21st century. Sad to say there are a lot of other challenges and they work together. In the case of Ukraine, I I think Russia and China are engaged in an entente. It's not a full-up alliance yet. It could become one fairly soon. Uh, And we have to see China's role as backing Russia here, as Russia might, sad to say, soon be backing China in a a thrust at Taiwan or something in the South China Sea. We live in a big world, and uh, we've got a lot of challenges. And if we don't think we have adequate resources, and we don't at the moment, certainly our defense budget is inadequate, we find more resources and we take them away from a lower priority. This is not hard to figure out. 
you know, where I think a lot of the chapter is falling is along the lines of if you want to be a superpower, you got to act like one, right? If you want to defend sovereignty around the world, you have to stand up to the bullies and the thugs. And that's basically what Vladimir Putin is. So I guess the question becomes on kind of a a bridge Colby tangent, how much are we able and willing to give? I think you're exactly right. And I'm deeply sympathetic. I actually agree with you. But the question becomes, how much can we give from the domestic policy pot into the foreign policy one, right? The decades of war in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think, are beginning to turn a lot of the conservative movement against entangling themselves abroad. And how do you make the case for keeping America safe at home precisely because we're aggressive abroad and we show the world that we're not afraid to commit resources when we have to? Well, I think actually things are turning in the right direction. I think the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan is now the prime example of an unforced strategic error by the United States. Even the senior Pentagon official in the Biden administration testified that uh, we were within six months of an attack by ISIS-K out of Afghanistan and within 12 months of an attack uh, by al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. It doesn't take much to figure out we are now more threatened after the withdrawal than before. But I do think there's a broader failure of political leadership at the top, and it's come in both Democratic and Republican administrations. People need to be able to understand the nature of these international threats. They need to understand the time and attention and resources are needed to combat them. They need to understand that if you want peace through strength, it doesn't come for free. And when political leaders shy away from that, largely, I'll say, just thinking of my old friend Karl Rove, uh, not including him in this criticism, but the class of political consultants doesn't know a thing about foreign policy. And goodness, if they don't know anything about it, it can't be that important, right? Whereas I think most Americans, uh, not everybody served in the military, not everybody's been overseas, but we are a population that has consistently risen to international challenges when we, we've had to in the past uh, century. So politicians who are prepared to take leadership roles, as, as I think George W. Bush did after 9-11, and explain to the people, give them the facts and make make arguments, can persuade uh, significant majorities to follow them. And I think that's possible here too. But if you don't care about international affairs, if you're content to leave the security of America in the hands of multilateral institutions like the Obama administration was, and if you don't explain that you are safer here at home by forward defense in Afghanistan, it's no wonder people say we've been there 20 years, what's, what's it produced? The answer is no terrorist attacks on the United States coming from Afghanistan. Let's see what happens now. God forbid, but the the risks are certainly higher. Yeah, Mr. Ambassador, that reminds me of probably one of the best propaganda posters of World War II. And on the bottom it says, Americans will always fight for freedom. And it has soldiers marching from Valley Forge in different uniforms all the way up until World War II. And I guess the current divide between the more isolationist strain of the conservative movement and the more activist strain of the conservative movement when it comes to foreign policy is the question of whether politics stops at the water's edge or engagement stops at the water's edge. And so how do we continue to make the strongest possible case for a robust American presence abroad, whether it's political, economic, or if need be, military? 
Well, one of, one of the things that uh, confuses me about this internal debate is that in many cases, it's the most libertarian students who are also the most isolationist. And since I consider myself pretty libertarian on, uh, on domestic issues, that contradiction, I think, is very troubling. Because if you believe, as I do, in minimal government presence, minimal interference, minimal taxation, minimal assumption of responsibilities the private sector can handle or state governments can handle. How is it that you feel comfortable with a uh, minimalist view of American involvement overseas when probably the ultimate great threats to American liberty uh, don't come from our fellow citizens. They come from people in places like the Kremlin and the Forbidden City who have extraordinarily different views of how society should be regulated. Now, in the 20th century, faced with obvious ideological threats like the Nazis and the communists, it was somewhat easier to understand the nature of the global threats that the, the United States faced and what we needed to do with them. Uh, I don't buy the argument today that it's uh, authoritarianism versus democracy, although many of our enemies are authoritarian. It's, it's the kinds of, of uh, societies that they create that are fundamentally opposed to ours and which ours is vulnerable to being corrupted by. Take, let's just take Russia, which is a kind of czarist regime now where the state essentially owns everything, not in a communist sense, but in a feudal sense. The oligarchs people talk about are not rich businessmen, they're vassals to the Kremlin and they manage their money and they get a lot of it uh, for themselves, but it's not their money and it's not their property. That's not a kind of society we would want to live in. And yet the money, the, the resources that the Kremlin has is, or that the uh, Chinese Communist Party has in China that can be used to undercut our society, to threaten our way of life politically and economically are very real. And so the, the issue is, are you just going to sit there and let this happen to you? Or are you going to understand that there are threats out there? You live in a dangerous world. So it's very, it's a totally anomalous to say we're against this federal statute or that federal statute, but why don't we sign an arms control treaty with Russia? Why don't we sign a nuclear deal with Iran? Where, where are these people, what, how could they believe that that is going to leave us safer? And since our ultimate objective is to protect our freedom, we have to understand where the threats come from. The Constitution's very clear. It talks about all enemies, foreign and domestic. So the deep state may be an enemy for some people, but there's, there are deeper states out there who don't have our best interests at heart. And I think as you appreciate that, you can see why a, a significant American role in the world is necessary, not because we're doing favors for other people, not because we're engaged in acts of charity. We're doing it out of self-interest. We're doing it to protect our own way of life. But I can tell you this, nobody else is going to do it for us. In our last couple of minutes together, we want to pivot to a conversation about the state of legal education. What would you say to the students who do care about these issues but are in law school right now and might not you know, find a class or professor or some other way to engage? What can they do to educate themselves and get involved? Well, I think, I think it's absolutely critical that people not feel that all uh, human wisdom is found either at Yale Law School or, or Yale College. And I'm an alumnus of both, and they were run by liberals in the late 60s and early 70s. I see things haven't gotten any better. In fact, they've probably gotten worse. So you have to find people to talk to or outside. I think it's a disgrace that from the time I was an undergraduate at Yale until today, 
that there's not enough people in the Yale administration who understand they are misserving their students by not having diverse ideological points of view. And I think it was Ben Carson, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in, in the Trump administration, a candidate for president himself, who said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, and he is a brain surgeon. I mean, he is a legitimate brain surgeon. He used to say, what matters is what's inside your head, not the color of what's wrapped around it. The lack of philosophical diversity at uh, the university generally and the law school in particular is disgraceful. And the fact that people seem unwilling to face up to that is disgraceful as well. So, you know, if, if it takes the students to go out and bring in uh, real diversity, intellectual diversity, then that's a task that, uh, that they should take on and, and really relish it. I want to I jump in and, and tack on to that question. I'm going to start by reading out a quote from Peter Callis, the former chairman of K&L Gates and a member of the Yale Law School class of 1978. And he gave this quote to David Latt, who wrote it about in his substack, Original Jurisdiction. And Mr. Callis wrote the following, and this will be very relevant to you, Mr. Ambassador. In 1972, as a 22-year-old fresh out of West Virginia University, I surveyed the Yale Law School dining hall and saw Bill Clinton, Hillary Rodham, Sam Alito, Rob Reich, Clarence Thomas, Dick Blumenthal, and other eventual stars in the legal firmament. Parenthetically, I'm going to add that he did not remember that Ambassador John Bolton was at Yale Law School in 1972. But we'll, we'll move on. Mr. Callis says, I was struck with how confident they were in their often opposing views and yet how respectful they were to each other. They were abundantly talented young adults preparing to play major roles in American life. And he goes on and he talks about Gene Rostow, Ralph Winter, Harry Wellington, Alex Bickle, the leading lights of Yale Law School in the mid-20th century. And he goes on and continues and he says, my experience at Yale Law School transformed my life, not least because it taught me to listen and think, and I'm thus terribly saddened to watch it as it exists today. And I'm not going to say too much else except that he concludes by saying, I'm close enough to conclude, however, that Yale Law School is unlikely to be part of any solution to the present problems. Those days are over. And I guess we'd love to hear from you about your reflections on your time at Yale Law School. And as we're talking about civil society, both at YLS and more broadly within legal education and American civil society, where you think we are and where you think we're heading and, and either how to reify what's good and how to fix what's not. Well, I think the law school has become much more intellectually sterile than when I was there. And uh, many of those professors you named, I took courses from. And uh, I do think there was a lot of ferment, not so much conservative versus liberal, because there weren't enough of us to make that much of a difference. But because of the of the time that we were in, in the uh, winding down period of the Vietnam War, among other things, but the philosophical bent of the students and the faculty was overwhelmingly to the left and had been for some time before that. That's how Yale Law got its reputation in the 30s and 40s and thereafter. That said, although the conservatives and, and even closet Republicans were in a distinct minority, you could make arguments and, and people would argue back with you. And that's, I mean, if that's not what we were supposed to learn in law school, I, I don't know why we bothered to spend three years there. Not that the administration was all that helpful e even then. But today, my impression is that the administration is negative on, on this point. They don't really care. And, and, and frankly, the law students who tried to uh, to shut down that uh, form were brown shirts. 
intellectual brown shirts. And we've got to be clear on this. If you're uh, afraid to hear opposing points of view, you're a very threatened person, very weak person. And your fear of having your ideas challenged, when you try then to impose it on others, you're spreading fear. So I think this is a, a real potential turning point for, for the law school. When, when I was an undergraduate, I, I once heard a freshman counselor who was a law, school, a law student at that point say that Yale Law School was the only desert he ever knew in the middle of an oasis. I'm afraid that it's, it's a lot worse today. And, you know, much of the writing that comes from the law school faculty is irrelevant to the practice of law, which is why, why we went to law school. At least I think that's why we went to law school. And increasingly disconnected from society as a whole, which is part of the problem of left-wing America generally. Now, I'm not so sure how much we should correct them, because if they spin off onto a different planet, I think it's much better for our political prospects, but it's bad for intellectual development in the United States, and really increasingly so because the number of dissenting voices on the faculty has shrunk. I mean, the days of Bob Bork, Ward Bowman, and, and Ralph Winter, just to name a few, uh, there there are people who are, I mean, I don't want to out them, but they are Republicans and conservatives on the faculty. But people don't want to give them a chance, really, to, to get involved in constitutional law questions where the, the big philosophical issues are fought out. It's bad for the law school. It's worse for the students. I think there is something to be said about the fact that you know, law school has just always kind of been this way. And we're in the middle of admitted student season right now. We're trying to talk to young conservatives, libertarians, and moderates and, and tell them why the Yale Federalist Society is, is a community worth engaging with, even in these times. I think that's part of the story. You know, not much has really changed. Part of the story is just how great our connections are. I mean, you know, we're grateful that you are coming back to, to spend your time with us right now. But do you have any other advice you would add, especially to those students who maybe are just out of undergrad, uh, maybe have worked for a couple of years, maybe at an institution like AEI, and are now trying to pull the trigger about whether Yale Law School is the right place to come for their legal education? Well, I, I think it's uh, it remains one of the premier law schools and therefore a place that people should go. And I think, frankly, it's good for your character if you're a conservative to go to a ridiculously liberal place like Yale because you're going to emerge the stronger for it. You will be tested in intellectual combat, and that's the way you learn. These other people are just going to come out like rubber stamped. Uh, their diplomas will be rubber stamped. All they have to do is recite back what their professors say in class. They don't have to think about it. It's an easy waste three years. But for those who, who are prepared for the challenge and understand what they're getting into, I think you should go there rather than if there's a conservative law school out there where it may seem more comfortable, I wouldn't go there. I got to say, Mr. Ambassador, I thought Build's character was an excuse that stopped once I stopped washing dishes and taking out the trash for my dad. <laughs> but it seems like going to Yale Law School builds character too. It definitely is. Courageous words from a courageous man. I think that's all we have time for today, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and talking to us. Thank you so much for joining the show. Glad to do it. Good luck to you. Thank you, Ambassador.